Well, good morning, everyone. I'm so glad you're joining with us here for our last week, really in this series course correction, which we've been looking at for Lent. And I know some of you might be really excited that Lent is soon coming to an end because this series in many ways, Jesus's words in many ways, they've been kind of harsh. They've been heavy. They've been difficult. But can I also just say this? I also believe that they are absolutely necessary. They are necessary. It is necessary sometimes for us to actually feel some words that unsettle us, that might actually cause us even some discomfort so that we might change. The Archbishop Oscar Romero, who was the Archbishop of El Salvador, actually, he was martyred for his faith. He once famously said this. He says, a church that doesn't provoke any crises, a gospel that doesn't unsettle, a word of God that doesn't get under anyone's skin, a word of God that doesn't touch the real sin of society in which it's being proclaimed. He asked this question, what kind of gospel is that? What kind of gospel is that? And that's true. So over the last few weeks, we have heard some words that have been a bit unsettling. They might have got under your skin a little bit. And I just want to be clear with this, that this is actually important for us. It's important not to just speak words that unsettle us as if unsettling is the point. No, 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 that's not the point. The point instead is to really hear and listen to Jesus's words that unsettle. Because when Jesus unsettles us, the point is always to shape us in a new direction so that we might actually change course, so that we might actually course correct, so that we might walk in a new way. And so today, as we continue on in this series, we're going to hear another word of Jesus that might unsettle us a little bit. And I do think that we need to hear unsettling words, especially for the church in North America. Because while the church in North America has been so often focused on issuing words of conviction and condemnation to the culture around us, we have been slower to listen to the words of conviction that Jesus might have for us. And so that's what we're going to see today. We're going to hear another one of Jesus' woes. And we're going to see how it might unsettle. But yet at the end, what we're going to discover here today, what we're going to actually find out, is how at the end, the heart of Jesus is all about mercy and love, even in the midst of words that can be challenging, that can be convicting, and that might even be a bit unsettling. So with that, let's read our passage for today. And then we're going to work through it uh, like we always do, kind of one point at a time as we go. So we read this. This is the last sorrow of Jesus, where he says, What sorrow or woe to you? He says, What sorrow awaits you, teachers of the religious law, and you Pharisees? He says, Hypocrites, for you build tombs for the prophets your ancestors killed, and you decorate the monuments of the godly people your ancestors destroyed. Then you say, If we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would never have joined them in killing the prophets. But in saying that, you testify against yourselves that you are indeed descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Listen to what Jesus says. This is harsh. This is pretty convicting. It's pretty straight and direct. He says this. He says, go ahead. Go ahead and finish what your ancestors started. He says, snakes, son of vipers. How will you escape the judgment of hell? How will you escape the judgment of hell? Therefore, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and teachers of religious law, but you will kill some by crucifixion. You will flog others with whips in your synagogues, chasing them from city to city. As a result, you will be held responsible for the murder of all godly people of all time, from the murder of righteous Abel to the murder of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you killed in the temple between the sanctuary and the altar. I tell you the truth, this judgment... This judgment will fall on this very generation. Now, there's lots of cultural things that are going on in here, and we're going to take a look at them here today to try to understand some of what Jesus is saying and to try to understand what he's saying back then, but also what he might be saying to us today. But the first thing I just want to name with this passage is this passage is pretty harsh, isn't it? It's pretty brutal. Like Jesus is just so strong and direct. Listen to some of the language that he says. He calls the Pharisees snakes. 
son of vipers, hell-bound people, right? How will you escape the judgment of hell? Like, that's what he's saying. This is pretty harsh. This is pretty strong. This is pretty direct. I think the question then that we should be asking really is just this, is what is it that is making Jesus so upset? What is it that is making Jesus so direct? Because can you ever picture this? Can you imagine Jesus saying this to you? Can you imagine like what that would feel like? I think the question for us then to really discover is to try to understand what is it that is causing Jesus so much frustration, upsetness? Why is he so strong here using such harsh and direct language? What is it that's going on within him that is causing him to react this way or causing him to respond this way? What is it that Jesus is seeking to correct in the Pharisees? And then what is it also that he might be seeking to correct within us? And to be able to understand what Jesus is talking about here, what we really do need to understand is the Old Testament prophets. We need to understand what prophets were like in the Old Testament because Jesus here is clearly referring to prophets who have come before, right? We see this in some of the things that he says because he said, for you build tombs for the prophets of your ancestors. Or he also says, uh, then you say, if you have lived in the days of our ancestors, we would never have joined in killing of the prophets. Or you're indeed descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Or then Jesus also mentions Abel and Zechariah, prophets um, in the Old Testament tradition. So to be able to understand Jesus's woe here, we need to first understand what prophets were in the Old Testament and what prophets did in the Old Testament. And so the first thing I want to name with this is when it comes to understanding the prophets, what we need to understand is that the prophets were relentless and fierce truth tellers. That's what the prophets were in the Old Testament tradition, that they were relentless and fierce truth tellers. And that the role of the prophet, follow with me, the role of the prophet so much wasn't to tell about the future. The role of the prophet actually was a little bit more nuanced than that. They weren't just foretelling the future. They were foretelling the truth of what was happening in their day and age. That the prophetic role was actually to reveal what was going on in the reality in their midst right then and there. That what the prophets did is they talked about what was happening in the current moment that would lead to certain futures. So the way we might put it is that the prophets were not so much about foretelling the future, but foretelling the truth. So what prophets often did in that day and age is they would talk about what is happening today and if we continue in this path, where it will lead. That's really what prophets did. They talked about what was happening today and where it will lead, where that course will take them, where that trajectory will take them. And so in the Old Testament, that's what prophets really did. They, for, uh, they foretold the truth of what was happening. And they always did this, really, to people in power. And this is an important distinction, that the prophets, what they did in the Old Testament is they would take the truth that God has revealed to them. They would take the truth of what is happening in the day and age around them. They would take the truth of what God is requiring of the people in that moment, and they would take it to those in power. And often then what would end up happening, if you know any of the stories in the Old Testament, is they would either be beaten, they would be sometimes tortured, or they would often be killed. And that's what Jesus here is kind of referencing. I think this is important for us to understand how the prophets really told truth, but they told truth to power. Because in our current day and age, especially in kind of North American Christianity, in some circles, it is actually popular to be prophetic. And by that, most often people mean to be kind of like telling people right and wrong, to not sugarcoat things and just tell it as it is. That often in our modern Western day con uh, concepts, to be prophetic means to be angry, loud, and brash but that isn't really the Old Testament style in terms of who you directed that towards. That in the Old Testament, remember, the prophets went and they told the truth to power. They did not amass platforms. They didn't amass large followings. They didn't amass like book deals and buildings and all of that sort of thing. Instead, what they did is they suffered the costs and the consequences of speaking the truth to power. 
And I think that this is important for us to understand because sometimes in our modern day and age, we have mistaken anger for prophetic or we've mistaken condemnation for truth-telling. I think we need better discernment than that. So Jesus here, when he's referencing the Old Testament prophets, what he's referencing is their um, real reality of telling the truth, even if it's harsh, even if it's difficult, to those in power and suffering the consequences of it. So I want to give you some examples from the Old Testament of how the prophets would do this, of some of the things that they would say, and it is direct and it is harsh, and really it's about seeking to change the course of the country of Israel in that uh, day and age. So I'll give you a few examples of what the prophetic voice kind of sounds like in the Old Testament. I'm going to read to you from Amos, and listen to what he says. Okay? Listen to how harsh he is. He says, listen to me. Listen to me, you fat cows living in Samaria. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and who are always calling to your husbands, bring us another drink. Amos says this. He says, the sovereign Lord has sworn by this, his holiness, that this time, the time will come when you will be led away with hooks in your noses. Every last one of you will be dragged away like a fish on a hook. Do you know that's in the Bible? You know what's in the Bible? And here we see really what the prophetic voice is all about. It's about calling out the acts of oppression of others, specifically those in power, and revealing where those actions will take. That here, uh, the prophet Amos isn't so much just sharing about the future. He's actually revealing what's happening in the present that will lead to a certain future. And so he says that you'll be led away, that there are consequences when you oppress the poor, the needy, the immigrant. This is the real theme in the Old Testament prophets. It's actually of our need to be caring and concerned for others. Okay? And I'll give you another example of how strong people can be in Jeremiah. Here in Jeremiah, Jeremiah goes to the king. And this is important because remember, prophets told the truth to power and then suffered the consequences of that. Okay? So Jeremiah goes to the king and he says this, you must submit to Babylon's king and serve him. You must put your neck under Babylon's yoke. I will punish any nation that refuses to be his slave, says the Lord. I will send war, famine, and disease upon that nation until Babylon has conquered it. Do not listen to your false prophets, fortune tellers, interpreters of dreams and mediums and sorcerers who say the king of Babylon will not conquer you. They are all liars and their lies will lead you to be driven out of their land and I will drive you out and send you far away to die. And Jeremiah says this, Jeremiah says this to the king. He says this to the king. And in that day and age, like in ours too, there were people then who were speaking false hope into dire situations, who were speaking false hope of you don't have to change. You don't have to alter anything. It's okay that the poor can continue to be poor and the rich can continue to be rich. It's fine. These were actually some of the professional prophets of the day and age. So there's another example of a prophet and his name is Hananiah, a professional prophet, or we might use a more modern day language, a PR spin person. And he says this, then Hananiah the prophet took the yoke off of Jeremiah's neck and he broke it into pieces. And Hananiah said again to the crowd that had gathered, this is what the Lord says. Just as this yoke has been broken, within two years, I'll break the yoke of oppression from all the nations now subject to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. He essentially assures people that you don't need to change. But the prophets were always truly calling people to change, calling them back to God and calling them back to caring for others, the poor, the mistreated, the immigrant, the orphan, the widow, that this is what the prophetic voice did. This is what prophets did in the Old Testament. And because of this, because of their willingness to challenge those in power, whether that was social power, theological power, political power, because of their willingness to do this, that they actually suffered the consequences. And most often they were killed but it was as if there was something within them that couldn't be contained. Jeremiah actually speaks of this. He actually says this. He says, but if I say I'll never mention the Lord or speak in his name, his word burns in my, in my heart like a fire. It's a fire in my bones. 
I am worn out trying to hold it in. I can't do it. He has to speak the truth. And so let's bring this back into conversation with the Pharisees then. So what was happening in that day and age, then the Pharisees, the Pharisees said that they would be listening to the Old Testament prophets, that they had lived in the time of Jeremiah or Amos. They would have heard that rebuke and they would have sided with the prophets. That essentially the Pharisees pictured them as the good guys because you always, almost always picture yourself as the good guys. This is what Jesus is talking about here, where he says this, for you build tombs to the prophets your ancestors killed, and you decorate the monuments of the godly people your ancestors destroyed. Then you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would never have joined them in killing the prophets. The Pharisees see themselves as on the right side of history and that they would have seen the sins of the past and that they would have actually seen the prophetic voice of God and they would have responded correctly. The Pharisees think that they are on the right side of things. But Jesus comes to them, really, and he says, but you aren't. You aren't any better than all of those who killed all of the prophets. You actually are living in the same line and living in the same way as them. This is what he means when he says, um, but in saying that, you testify against yourselves that you are indeed the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead and finish what your ancestors started. Snakes, son of vipers, how will you escape the judgment of hell? He says, therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers of religious law, but you will kill some by crucifixion. You will flog others with whips in your synagogue, chasing them from city to city. Jesus goes to the Pharisees and he says, even though you style yourselves as someone who would listen to the Old Testament prophets, as someone who does care about the orphans, the poor and the needy, Jesus says you don't. Jesus says you don't. And you reject the prophets and you kill them just like your ancestors did. And then he says something that is quite harsh. He says, how will you escape the judgment of hell? How will you escape the judgment of hell? When? When you worry more about religious rules than people. That's really the undercurrent of what's going on here in this passage. And so then, there are two things I want to point out in this passage that are important for us to understand. Two extra little bits that Jesus says that can kind of go over our heads if we're not familiar with the context of what he's speaking. And the first is, I want to make a few specific comments on this verse, where Jesus says, go ahead and finish what your ancestors have started in verse 32. And while this is an appropriate way to translate this verse, it makes more sense to us. More literally, more literal translations would translate it this way. Fill then up the measure of your fathers. That's from the ESV. Or the NASB translates this way, fill up then the measure of guilt of your fathers. And here when Jesus is saying this, he's referring to an Old Testament idea that you are actually responsible for what has come before you. You're actually responsible for what has come before you. I know we don't like this. I know we fight against this, especially in the West. We just like to be responsible for ourselves, but that actually isn't a part of the Jewish idea or the Christian idea. You're responsible for what comes before you. And so when Jesus actually says this, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your, of your fathers, the idea is this that God would be patient, that God would wait. But at a certain point, when sins continue to pile up and pile up and pile up, that God will pour out his cup of wrath, that there will be consequences, that God is patient, inviting people to change, inviting people to make a course correction. But when they continue to reject God, when they continue to reject his prophets and those who speak the truth, that there will be consequences. And there will be a moment then where finally the sins of the Father are filled up and they are actually poured out. That's what that phrase, go ahead and finish what your ancestors have started, really means. And I want to remind you of this too. That when Jesus is saying this, remember that the Pharisees were the most holy people. That they followed all the right religious rules and rituals. But what they were missing was really a heart after God. 
a heart for the poor, a heart for the hurting, a heart for the needy, that they did not remember the major things of mercy and justice, that this is what is going on with the Pharisees. And then Jesus at the very end, he says this, as a result, you'll be held responsible for the murder of all godly people for all time. He says, from the murder of the righteous Abel to the murder of Zachariah, son of Berechiah, whom you killed in the temple between the sanctuary and the altar. He says this, I tell you the truth, this judgment will fall on this very generation. He says, I tell you the truth, this judgment will fall on this very generation. And God's judgment did fall on that very generation. If you know history, then what you would know is that in AD 70, the Romans walked in and wiped Jerusalem off the face of the earth. That it became a ghost town. They literally just killed everyone in it. Josephus, um, an ancient historian, he talks about like rivers of blood running throughout the city, that there was judgment and that this did actually happen. When Jesus says that the judgment will fall in this very generation, that is actually what happened. So what does this all mean for us? Because this is some pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? Jesus says to the Pharisees that they are actually living not in line with the prophets, but against them. And he's pretty direct. He's pretty harsh, calling them, you know, vipers, snakes, hellbound people, essentially. What do we do with this? What does this mean for us? Because this is pretty heavy material. Well, what I think we can't do, what I think we can't do is ignore it or deny it. But what I do want to clear up with this, because even in the midst of this conviction where Jesus says really to the Pharisees that your religious following of rules will not prevent actually the consequences of ignoring and hurting others from falling upon you. So what I want to do then today is to clear up the heart that these words of Jesus come from, these words of rebuke, these words of conviction, because this is just true. Whatever you think is at the center of God, this will shape how you understand God. Okay? Whatever you think is at the center of God, this will shape how you understand God. Like, for example, if you think that God at his center is angry, this will shape your relationship with God. If you think that God at his center is some distant, angry, like, I don't know, grandfather figure, this will shape your relationship with God. If you think that God at the center is actually Jesus, that Jesus fully reveals God, this will shape your relationship with God. Because this is just true in the reality around us, that many different circles in Christianity, many different theological traditions or places have different starting points when it comes to talking about God. That some prioritize power, some prioritize judgment, some prioritize holiness, and others prioritize other things. And this is important for us to realize what is at the center of God and what is at the center of his heart, because this does shape how we see him. In fact, in high school, in high school, I actually rejected God because I was rejecting other people's starting place with him. That in high school, as I've shared with you before, my dad, um, my dad actually was diagnosed with cancer, and he was given a 10% chance of living one year. And I can remember, I was in high school struggling with this. And I can remember some people coming up to me and saying things like this. This literally happened. And these are things you should never, ever say to someone. I remember someone coming up to me and saying, you know what, though, Andrew, this is really God's will. This is really God's will. You know what I thought? I thought any God who wills cancer is not a God I want to follow. That's what I thought. But for this person, their starting place with God, the center of God, was that he is all-powerful and all-controlling. So when they came up to any experience, they thought this must be the will of God. Right? Because your starting place does affect your relationship with God. I had somebody else once come up to me after we'd been praying for my dad and asking for healing. And their only solution to this was they said to me, there must be some like maybe secret sin of your dad's. And I know none of you really know my dad or had any interaction with him. But my dad was the most holy person that I had ever met. And so I knew that this was false, but yet for this person, their starting place then, their center of understanding who God was, it was as a judge, it was as holy. And so therefore, if what we wanted wasn't happening, 
it must be because of that. And I could give you more examples and examples and examples of this. But I think it's important for us to just recognize and to realize that where we start with God shapes our relationship with God. That where we start with him shapes our relationship with him. And here in this passage, what we are actually going to see, if we pay attention, what we are actually going to see is where Jesus' heart is, where his starting place is. Because many theological systems and traditions, they might emphasize things like God's holiness or his judgment or his power. All of these are true. But what we're going to see in this passage is what Jesus reveals about his heart is that his heart begins in a place of mercy, grace, and love. That this is the center part of God. That his heart begins in a place of mercy, grace, and love. And we know this. We know this not only because 1 John says that God is love, not only because of the cross, but because of this passage here today. I want to finish reading it. Because here in this passage, Jesus is going to reveal his desires in his heart. Let's read what he says. And so Jesus continues, and he says this. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. He never denies the sin and the consequences that are there. But then he says this. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a mother hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. But you wouldn't let me. And now look, your house is abandoned and desolate. For I tell you this, you will never see me again until you say blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. I want to read one section again. Listen to this. Picture this and actually hear this. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. Let me ask you. Let me ask you from this passage, where is Jesus' heart? Where are these words of rebuke and conviction coming from? Notice with me, what does he say? That he has a desire and a longing to gather Jerusalem together, to gather the Pharisees together, that he actually has a heart, follow with me, that is for the Pharisees, that is not against them. That at his core, at his center, at his starting, he actually has a heart like a mother hen, as the text says. One that wants to gather, to protect, to guide, to give life, to shelter. That Jesus' heart, according to this passage, and what he reveals about himself, is that he has a desire to gather people in for protection, for life, for meaning, for guidance. That's what this passage says. Listen to what Jesus says. How often I have wanted to gather your children together. That Jesus, Jesus, follow with me. Jesus doesn't want this judgment to happen. That even though he says that there will be judgment, he doesn't want it to be happening because his desire is to guide and gather and to shepherd and to protect. That's his desire that he says, how often I've wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. But he says this, but you wouldn't let me. But you wouldn't let me. Because here, here we see something that's really quite challenging, but it's important for us to realize and recognize that God's desire, God's heart, because Jesus fully reveals God's heart. God's desire and God's heart is to gather us together like a mother hen, like a mother, to come and to gather us for protection, for guidance, to be arounding us, to be surrounding us. But here Jesus also reveals that if we push him away, if we reject him, if we do not let him do this, that we cannot receive what he has for us. That Jesus actually honors our wishes. That he actually honors our free will and our choices. That he says, how often I have desired. I've desired to gather you together, but you wouldn't let me. But you wouldn't let me. So when Jesus offers a word of rebuke for the Pharisees, when Jesus says that they are going to experience judgment, it is not because Jesus wants them to, it is that they continue to reject him. So what does this mean for us all here today? 
because I know we've covered a lot of different ideas. We've looked at the Old Testament prophets and how they were truth tellers. We've seen how Jesus comes to the Pharisees and he says to them that there will be judgment because they continue in the same path as those who do not follow God, as those who do not care for those around them, who do not care about things like justice and mercy. Remember our woe from just a few weeks ago. So what does this mean for us here today? Because we also then have seen We also then have seen how Jesus has a heart, has a heart like a mother hen, as he says, one that he wants to use to gather, to protect, to bring um, us under his wings for shelter and for meaning and for life. So what does this mean for us today? Well, here's what I think it means, at least for me, as I've been praying through this passage, as I've been thinking it through, that Jesus here goes to the Pharisees and he calls them out, really. He rebukes them and he convicts them and he says there will be judgment. And what we know what we know is that that judgment did come in AD 70. But here's what we also know, that even though the Pharisees missed the point, I don't think that we have to. That's my main point today. That even though the Pharisees missed the point, I don't think that we have to, because I believe that Jesus Christ never changes, that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the same heart that Jesus has when he's speaking to the Pharisees is the same heart that he has for us when he's speaking to us. And I know over the last few weeks here, I know we've been hearing words of conviction, of rebuke. I know we've been hearing words of course correcting, and that's been important. But today, what we also really notice is that every single one of these words, they come from a heart that is for us, not against us. They come from a heart that wants to gather us in. They come from a heart that wants to protect us and to shield us if we would but listen to Jesus. If we would but listen to Jesus. So today, what is my main point? My main point is that the Pharisees missed the point, but we don't have to. We can make different choices. We can choose to listen to Jesus' words. We can choose to follow him. We can choose to actually allow him to gather us together as he says his heart and his desire is. So what's my main point? It's that the Pharisees missed the point, but we, we don't have to. We can choose differently. So what does this mean for us here practically today? Well, today I know we've seen a lot of the condemnation uh, that Jesus has towards those who mistreat others, of the conviction and the rebuke. And we spent a lot of time over the last few weeks spending time in confession, in prayer. Today, though, today, though, to close, what I want to invite you to do is I want to invite you actually to accept Jesus' invitation. That's what I want to challenge you to do. I want to invite you to accept Jesus' invitation because what is it that he says? He says, how often I've wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. I think the invitation there for us is will we let Jesus gather us together? Will we let him actually protect us? Will we let him shelter us? Will we let him really bring us together? That's the invitation before us. That while the Pharisees chose to reject Jesus, today, today we can make a different choice. We can choose to allow Jesus to actually gather us together, to actually protect us, to actually sit under the shelter of his wing as that passage talks about. That today, today what I wanna challenge you with is will you allow Jesus Will you allow him to gather you to himself? Will you allow Jesus to gather you to himself? And I don't want you to answer that question too quickly. Because what we've seen over the past, you know, five weeks together, what we've seen is how often our own pride can get in the way. What we've seen is how often we can be outside the kingdom, actually blocking people from going in. What we've seen is how easy it is to not actually hear the words of Jesus and to just hear our own thoughts. So today, I don't want you to answer that question too quickly of are you willing to allow Jesus to really gather you in? Because I think it's something we do need to actually contemplate with him. And so to close today, what we're going to do is we're going to give you time to just contemplate that question. Are you willing to let Jesus really gather you in? Are you willing to let Jesus really um, protect you and to shelter you? Are you willing to allow Jesus to do what he wants to, which is, as he says, to gather you together? 
So we're going to spend the next few moments actually just listening to a song and to worship and there'll be scripture. And I want to invite you to just ponder that question and to actually respond to it. To say to Jesus, yes, I do want you to gather me together. Yes, Jesus, I do want you to gather me close. Yes, Jesus, I am responding to you. I want to invite you to spend time in the next few moments to think about how you would respond. Because what we know from this passage is that, is that the Pharisees do reject Jesus and suffer the consequences of it. But today, today we can make different choices. Because what we know is that Jesus at his heart is about mercy and grace. That's what this passage does reveal, that he wants to gather us in so today we can accept his invitation if we would sit with him and if we would allow him to do that. So today, that's my challenge for you. Would you allow Jesus to gather you in? Whether maybe for the very first time or maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time, today is really about us responding to him and his invitation where he says, I long to gather you together. And I think that is still true today, what he has for you and what he has for me. The question is, the question is, is how will we respond? Because what we do know from this passage too is that Jesus honors our responses. So today, there's an invitation before each of us. There's an invitation to allow Jesus to gather us together. And so with that, would you join with me in prayer here today? God, I ask, as we come into this moment, I pray would we truly hear your voice? I pray, God, if there are things to confess, might we do that? If there are course questions to make, might we do that? But most of all, Lord, I pray, I pray, might we sit with your spirit? Might we sit with your presence? And might we allow you to gather us in? God, I'm so grateful for the fact that you do want to do this, that at your heart there is grace and there is mercy, and that, Lord, today you do want to gather us in as a mother hen. So I pray, I pray, God, would we receive that? Would we respond to that? Would we accept that invitation? And might we know your shelter? Might we know your protection? Might we know your guidance? Might we know your life? And might we connect with you in this moment as we sit with you and respond to you? And I pray this all in the wonderful name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen.